Hey everybody, I just want to take a moment to talk about a new thing I'm doing. Over the years, many of you have reached out to me telling me how much you love the podcast, but also wish there were more personalized takeaways and more in-depth interactions with our guests to hear what they think about comedy. This is why I'm now launching my new digital academy, Blueprint for Success. With exclusive interviews and comedy philosophies of stars and industry veterans, personalized versions of the Industry Standard podcast, commercial-free, and one-on-one coaching time with me. Blueprint for Success will give you the powerful tools that will take you up the elevator beyond the competition and reach the highest possible levels to achieve your dreams. Whether it be stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, hosting, radio podcasting, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or an agent. Now I'm here to help, personally. We'll go on an express train of comedy and entertainment like nobody else has before. You can find out more about Blueprint for Success and the comedy business on my website at barrycats.com. Together, we'll take your career where you want it to go. Louis is very idiosyncratic. Louis does what Louis does. He's brilliant, you know, obviously one of the most brilliant stand-ups out there. He's a brilliant writer. He does his thing. Obviously, that's what he's doing now, and it's brilliant. All right. Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard. Uh, this is Barry Katz. And my guest today, I'm, I, I can't even tell you how excited I am that he's here. We're going to have an amazing time and it's going to be very inspirational. But let me introduce him to you. And it's a lot of things to talk about with this guy. Uh, he originally grew up in Syracuse, New York, which is a, an area where my dad went to school at Syracuse University. Uh, um, he went to film school at Ithaca College, and then he moved to New York City and uh, became a stand-up comedian and then uh, performed on Late Night with Conan O'Brien and a number of different television shows. He then segued into serving as a warm-up comedian for several shows like Maury Povich, um, Dana Carvey, and Spin City. Um, in the late nineties, he was a staff writer on a really groundbreaking show that I remember from the Scalar brothers called apartment two F and he was hired by the legendary Bill Lawrence to pen an episode of spin city, a uh, partner in crime of his in New York, Ray Romano joined up for the first time where they worked together in writing his best selling New York times, um, book called everything in a kite. Uh, later on that year, Mike wrote uh, the Sports Center sketch for Ray's Saturday Night Live appearance, which was named the 50, one of the 50 greatest SNL sketches of all time by Rolling Stone magazine. He joined the writing staff of Everybody Loves Raymond in 1999 and eventually became one of its executive producers, the highest honor and credit you can get on a television <laughs> show. In 2003, he was nominated for an Emmy Award for Outstanding Writing, and he and the writers and producers won the Comedy Emmy in both 2003 and 2005. 
after Raymond. Uh, he segued into obviously a much less respected gig working with Louis C.K. as an executive producer on HBO's first ever sitcom, Lucky Louis, which was an amazing show. And I'm joking, of course. Uh, incredible show. He co-created TNT's Men of a Certain Age with Ray, again serving as executive producer and showrunner. And um, it won the prestigious Peabody Award in 2011, as well as the Television Academy Award, Academy Honors Award for programming. Uh, Mike currently is under a deal at 20th Century Fox and executive produces and co-showruns the critically acclaimed show for Fox entitled Enlisted. Please welcome my guest today. Awesome, Mike Royce. <laughs> Thank you. I first of all want to apologize for the length of that bio. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty much no st stone unturned. Um, yeah, it's pretty pretty big bio there. When I don't think I can follow that. It's st <laughs> stealing a, stealing a line from you earlier. Yes. <laughs> um, when Maury Povich is in there, you know it's that you've got everything. <laughs> Not, not yeah, to. I was. I couldn't find Jerry Springer in here, though, <laughs> or Judge Judy. <laughs> yeah, those are the only two. That was a you know warm up was. Um, it's funny. I was listening to DJ DJ Nash, who you had on, and the, I, I'm so I can't. You know, you sit across from people, and it's so like humbling that you listen to the. I can't even believe that you would listen to the. Podcast. I have a dog that I have to walk. <laughs> You know, we all need 20 minutes here and there of podcasts. Sometimes Mark Maron's too angry. You know, you have to switch over. Sometimes I've listened to all the all of Doug Benson stuff. You'll never get angry here. And yeah, yeah, this is very spiritual. Your opening was very spiritual. It was very inspiring. It was. Uh, I realize you're gonna you're you're kind of undermining your entire business model, right? <laughs> like eventually, anything you can possibly tell anyone is gonna be out there. And then why just get the tapes, right? The tapes, because I'm a thousand years old. Get the the what other podcast? That's right. I'll I'll be I'll be fired by everybody, which yes. uh, which will be uh... the, the managerial version of uh, of her, <laughs> where they just go around with you in their ears all the time. What's the advice? You know, punch number forty two. Oh yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. Make my own luck or whatever. It'll yeah. save a lot of money. I thought you were gonna say early on. It's like, hey, I have to go out and I have to kick my dog. <laughs> you're gonna say walk by now. but as i like to do with these crazy podcasts is i love to start at the beginning yes because that's my jumping off point and so take me back like for you know wherever it was you were before you had any inkling of wanting to be in show business and tell me what happened to get you thinking about it well that's funny that's way back because uh I was a young, I was a nerd of many stripes growing up. I was? was am, continues, I continue <laughs> to be a nerd. I've just shed certain, like my daughter is an, is a, you know, a, she's one of the nerds that everyone likes now. And How old's your daughter? 15. So That's she's incredible. anime, she loves, she like knows, she's a big Tumblr person. She knows everything that's, you know, like all these graphic novels she's into. That's like the cool nerd, you know, and I liked that kind of stuff way back when in, you know, sp uh, comic books and, but I kind of shed all that because what happened was I saw a musical and it was the pajama game. Where'd you see it? <laughs> uh, it was a, a, like a rival high school 
And my friends and I used to make movies, and we were making a James Bond movie, of course, and um, we needed a girl. And, you know, we're 14 or something like that. And uh, we, <laughs> my friend's mom was like, I know a girl who's an actor, and she's in this, you know, musical at whatever high school was, I can't even remember. And we went to see really the pajama game is the most musical of musicals. It's so, you know, froofy and everyone's in their pajamas and there's the music is, you know, it was the furthest thing. My two friends just looked on slack jaw. Like this is the worst nightmare they could imagine because they weren't that kind of nerd. They were a comic book nerd and, uh, um, musicals were, that's another camp. That's another tribe, you know? And for me, it was like a conversion ceremony because I, was just like uh, something about being on stage. I don't know. I was just watching every moment of it going like, I want to, I just music, you know, I got to do that. Like I got to I have to be on stage. And, really and again, you that. were 14 or I want to say 13 or 14 or something okay. like that. That was the first time where I thought like show business, you know, something to do with show business. Before that it was, you know, comic books and I mean films, but I wasn't thinking that was the first time where I was like, I got to be on the stage, you know? Again, I thought you were going to say, that was the first time I looked at something and I said, I got to dance. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that's what you were going to say. That is, that, um, that never came to fruition, <laughs> even though I tried. That was really what, what destroyed the dream. Cause then I got into musicals in high school and, um, I was never a dancer, but I was always, that's where I went on. I always got the funny parts, you know? And so it, that sort of all progressed into, well, I have some proof. Like I was never a class clown. I was always just the guy who sat in the back with my friends and whispered insults. And then, you know, what's that? And then I, I would just shut up and really just kept to myself and shy. And, um, but then I'd get on stage and I, they'd hand me lines to say, and I could, I sort of blossomed. Um, so that was, the, that was sort of what led me to think, well, um, essentially that combined with watching every comedy show that was on, I was a big Saturday Night Live guy, you know, Letterman is my foreman of experience. I used to sit in bed and watch every morning, the morning show. You remember the morning show? Yeah. Yeah. Th th that was, he was just a genius. So, to, so I'm watching him knowing that's like that, the, just that's the pinnacle of comedy. If I could ever do that, that would be my dream come true. And, uh, those, you know, that sort of all combined to once I went to New York, you know, I, like I said, I was listening to DJ and <laughs> DJ apparently went on stage, DJ Nash, DJ Nash. his, uh, story includes a lot of, uh, I would just go on stage anywhere and, and I was the king of the colleges and I was big, at I was deathly afraid to do comedy at college, uh, because I just figured if I bomb, I'm with my audience, you know, for four years, it's like a cruise ship that never stops. There were a couple of guys that I knew who were film students and they would go on and they, you know, and, uh, you know, it's all about, obviously it's all about confidence. <laughs> and, um, it was the beginning of a formative experience in my life, which is I'm always best when expectations are low. <laughs> <laughs> well, I you're like, in the right place. Yeah. <laughs> this is very impressive. You can't see. Well, have you turned the cameras outside to see your view? It's we haven't extremely... done that, but you can tell our audience about it if you want. You can see everything from, I'm not even sure what I'm looking at over there, but that, that is downtown LA you where can the Staples see downtown, Center is. This is how, I've been here 15 years. I don't know where the, 
fuck I am. But um, and, uh, right up down there is yeah. a CAA and around the corner, uh, ICM. So, and then right next door to us is Resolution, the Jeff Berg's new company. And then the other way is the ocean and uh, Santa Monica. You see the, the, you're right. you see the plane crashing into the building right yes. now? Yes. You can. You, he has a perch above all that's happening in Los Angeles. It's so it's very very strange uh, up here. It's wonderful. It's it's uh, I love it here, and uh, I'm glad you feel comfortable it's here. It's fantastic, but um, but yeah, I, I wasn't bold enough to do stand up comedy till I moved to New York, and I moved to New York just because my college roommate moved there, and uh, I was a film major. And I wanted to do writing, and and that was the plan. And I never in a million years thought I would do stand up comedy just because I never ever thought I'll just never have the balls, you know. And then you get to New York. And there's the mid eighties, the late mid to mid eighties. And there's a million open mics and, you know, Pips was a thing way out. Pips in was in Brooklyn and it was one of the longest, oldest comedy clubs around. I think it'd been Christ in the eighties. I think it had already been around like 20 years or something yes. like that. Yes. It was, I, I don't know why I ended up choosing Pips, but I think I was living on Staten Island. So maybe. And it's odd that you chose that because Pips was, as was probably the most similar to uh, a Boston a comedy club because you know it's more of a neighborhood. There's a bar there. It's, yeah. it's 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 hard to get laughs there. And you normally the people that do really well there were the people like Angel Salazar yes. or Rick Avilas or people who are very high energy. And you weren't high energy. No, no. And I'm not. Uh, the thing that gave me courage was no one will ever. I'll just walk out of here. I'll never see any of these people again. That I'll just endure it. Uh, that's the worst that can happen, you know. Meanwhile, I had you know written forty-five minutes of material and gotten my confidence way up. Like, look at all this material I have. You wrote forty-five minutes before sure. you ever went A on solid stage. Forty-five. Now it came out of my now, mouth. Now he's being—he's joking <laughs> here, but I just want to share something with you. In all of my life and my career, <clears throat> I have never known anyone who wrote 45 minutes in a notebook <laughs> before they did their first open mic night. I've never known anybody who did that. Computerized. I had a word processor was very ahead of the game at that point. Um, and it was like sheafs of, you know, dot matrix paper with just, and I mean, I really was like, oh my God, I got, and you could tell how, how wayward my brain was because I had just seen Dennis Miller. He was the, he was very, you know, breaking through at that point. He was on Letterman and you just start to copy people. And I didn't really copy Dennis Miller, but I thought he's my kind of guy, you know, maybe, maybe I'm like him. And I think it was because he was so smart that I wanted to emulate him. But of course my personality couldn't be, uh, it couldn't be more different than, than Dennis Miller, but that was in my head. So <clears throat> I wrote reams of stuff and I just went, Oh my God, I'm so, where, what do I choose from? I have so much material. And, um, you know, I went down there and very quickly, started to get really, really scared. Um, and it went well, and I'm not proud of this, but my very first laugh, it went well for a reason. My very first laugh came at the expense of another comedian, the one who was before me, which is, you know, uh, taboo. It's uh, one of the biggest taboos, <laughs> but you didn't, but you didn't know at the time. I didn't know at the time. And I think even now I can let myself off the hook. What happened was this guy, whoever's I'm seeing, I wish I could remember. I can't remember anybody who was there. Not one name. Um, guy, MC comes up. He says, we're, we're, we got to bump you because I get this guy out of here. And even then I kind of knew what that meant. I thought, oh no, someone really good's going on, you know? 
And instead, it was the opposite. It was some open micer that he wanted to get rid of. They were He was driving them crazy. I guess he came every week or something, and they hated him. And I don't know why they had to put him on, but they put him on. And he was a guy who was very odd, just an oddball. And his whole act was he would do some kind of joke, and then he would do, this was his bit for the night, he would do some kind of joke and then say, and now I'd like to do that same joke for you like from Transylvania and he would turn around, put in vampire teeth and turn like, you know, novelty storage vampire teeth and do the same joke with the big, stupid vampire accent, you know, and it just, you know, he just ate it, ate it, ate it, ate it. I, I, I wish I knew who he was because either he never did stand up again or he's. Some... I only know one guy who did vampire humor. That was Dominic Fig. No, I believe, I think this guy probably was from Transylvania. I Fantastic. feel like he was East, Eastern European. He was an oddball. And, and so you he know, dies a miserable death, and then you get introduced. I go on, and the first thing I do is like, I'm going to start my routine, but first I'd like to show it to you from Transylvania. <laughs> and I turn around, like I'm going to put the teeth in, and everyone laughs. I go, oh my God, wouldn't that be horrible? <laughs> and I think the guy was out of the room, and again, I'm not proud of it. But it got things off. It kind of greased the wheels. But you changed the, you know, what's interesting is you adjusted. That's such a great metaphor for your career and everything or, or anybody's <laughs> career. Someone else. No, not shitting, with, not shitting on somebody, mm -hmm. but assessing a situation that isn't the way it was supposed to be right. five minutes earlier and adjusting to be more successful at the moment or whatever it is. It's almost like driving a car and all of a sudden like a, a ball comes out or something. You have to adjust or else you... Yes. You know, there's something bad that happened. It certainly turned into kind of my early talent as far as being an MC and sort of what I ended up doing a lot of in New York City. And and yeah, I went on there. I did okay. I went on another thing where I brought everyone from my day job and killed. What was your day job? I worked. I was a temp. I worked for uh, MetLife, you know, at that time. Yeah, I was making good money, you know, doing word processing always very responsible that was a thing maybe too responsible sometimes but um that's part of i think what led into my i think that was my mentality that's why i became an m sort of drifted into emceeing so much i just always had a responsibility i really wanted everybody to be having a good time and that was you know, that combined with the paralyzing guilt of people not having a good time no but it's true <laughs> and you mentioned you know how you mentioned something about that person um, I remember one of my first shows I saw an MC really do something that blew me away is that there was a there was a show and the guy as often happens it, ha it happens all the time there's just somebody who goes on there could be like they could be the biggest act in the world or the least experienced act and for some reason they just don't connect and it's like crickets and it's silent and if it's a longer set like 10 or 15 or 20 minutes it's very painful, and normally audiences in the city are more accepting of it, and they will not. They will sit through it respectfully, whereas audiences in the outlying areas are not as generous, and they'll, <laughs> right, they'll boo right. you off or they'll yell at you. And I remember this guy went on, and for 20 minutes, he just did not get a laugh, but he just kept going like he was getting laughs. And it was one of the most horrible sets I ever <laughs> saw somebody do. And the MC came out... And he could have shit all over this guy and gotten a great laugh, but he was like, just 
high energy. He got it together. He's like, okay, let's hear it for this person. Let's go. It's great. You guys are great. You're a great crowd. And just kept it positive and right. moving. And two minutes later, you forgot that somebody didn't do well. And that's what you used to do. Yeah, MC-wise, that's immediately what you uh, what you learn is that, yes, you're there to support everybody else. And um, I seem to have an instinct for that. And um, later, I kind of the things that I learned, I had to unlearn because you can do too much emceeing and you have no act <laughs> by the time you're done. <clears throat> and I was, you know, for the early part of the 90s, once I started working at the Comedy Tower, because basically the reason I started working there, and that was my big, I had passed at other clubs, but the place I really started working a lot was was the cellar was because Bill Grunfest was transitioning into into writing. So he had gotten a job. I think it was on Designing Women, but he was moving out here. <clears throat> Bill Grunfest came to New York from Boston, I believe, or someplace around those areas. And he came to the Comedy Cellar and started comedy there, uh, working with the owner of the club, who has since passed away, uh, Manny Dwarman, who's an amazing man. Mm -hmm. And then Bill uh, ended up doing what you're doing and left and and... There was a there was a spot open for somebody to really like a lot of spots, a lot of spots, <clears throat> just hours and hours and hours of hosting because he hosted every show unless he was busy or something. But I mean, he was there six or seven nights a week and the acts that worked there weren't interested. They were usually at that time. Well, still, they, they really had they picked the, the comedy. So would pick the cream of the crop. But there was still that sort of sh clubs fighting with each other a lot back then. At least there the were. Ladies. And when I opened my club. I don't know why Manny, this is what, uh, you know, Manny and Esty, who's still there now, um, Manny was always amazing to me. And I opened my club up, literally, I would say, if you were to draw a line from my club to his and it was through buildings or whatever, maybe 200 meters away or at, at, at best <laughs> a quarter of a mile, but doubtful. Yeah. Um, and I used to have people passing out flyers on the corners of all the streets and things. And he never, he never messed with me. He never really was that hard on me. And I think it was because, again, like you said, I was the underdog. And right. he didn't think that I was going to amount to anything or was going to happen. When things started getting really busy and really crazy at my club, then he, <laughs> then he tried to tell comics not to work there. But... When you do that, there's certain comics that just doesn't work with, right. you know, if you're not going to tell Chappelle not to work a certain club or right. it's just not going to work. It's only going to work for the people who are, are fearful. Right. Um, but I want you, if you don't mind, because I have so much to talk to you about, but I've never talked about the comedy seller in those days and what it was like with the Olive Tree Cafe above and the... Um, music club downstairs, the yeah, Cafe Wa. Um, but also about Manny, who is no longer with us. And I think it's one thing I, I, I learned from Manny that a lesson about life and, and business and people. When you went to the comedy cellar, the 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 the, the servers there were the most beautiful women and they were like but they weren't they never wore makeup they never wore high heels they just were just 
they just were who they were and they were spectacularly beautiful inside and out and every comic was always trying to sleep with them uh, with a lot of times little or no success john stewart was the only one (laughs) (laughs) and and i remember there was this wonderful server who i was having a meeting with manny in that first booth as you walk in and uh, we were meeting, and there was a round tray on the table, like a serving tray. And this woman came up, and she she picked up the tray, and he looked at her, and he said, you're fired. And I was, like, in shock. And she said, Manny, what, are you joking? And he said, no, I'm not joking. You're fired. And she's like, well, why, why would you fire me? What did I do wrong? He said, I told you. When you came here, when you started training every server here, that tray stays with you at all times. Mm. That tray never leaves your possession because if that tray leaves your possession, that means you're not working as hard as you could. You're not selling as many drinks as you could. And that's what this is all about here. You're fired. And she looked at them with tears in her eyes. It was horrifying to be there, but it was an amazing lesson. She said, but that was the first time I ever left it on the table. And he looked at her and he said, no, that was the first time I ever saw you leave it on the table. Right. And true to form in every every profession, these things that happen with people is why you either get to the next level or you don't. And Manny was hard that way, but he was also great with the artists, but he was hard with certain artists and there were certain artists that he wouldn't pass. Yes. And just to, (laughs) I just want to share one other thing about the comedy seller before you describe the atmosphere and what it's like. The comedy seller to any comedian listening or anybody who's been in a comedy club Ordinarily, if you were to show anybody a video link of this, a 360 degree link of this room, (laughs) anybody would say, this is a hell gig. This is a fucking hell gig. Bathroom. And let me explain it. (laughs) So the ceilings, you can touch with your hand. Um, There's pipes everywhere. It's a long rectangular room that's literally three times as long or four times as long as it is wide. Okay, there's only one bathroom in the entire Olive Tree Cafe upstairs and downstairs in the comedy club. And in order to get there, you have to walk through the comedy club. The row to walk through the comedy club is in back of one set of chairs that's in front of a stage that's maybe three inches high with a piano on it that leaves a comedian about maybe five or six feet by eight feet room and their head very close to the ceiling. And the lights are right over that walkway, it seems, and there are people walking back and forth, back and forth, all through the night, with the majority of the people you're playing to and back of them who can't see because people are walking back and forth. <laughs> it's it's literally like probably, arguably, if you were building a comedy club, it would be your hundredth choice <laughs> out of a hundred. But what's odd about it is if you were to ask every comedian 
in New York City and poll them anonymously, where would you want to work on a Saturday night? They would say the comedy cellar. It was killer. So describe mm. Manny, the, 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 the atmosphere, what it was like, well, the was, late night spots, the whole process. Yeah. That was, I covered a long period there and I covered a giant period of, of, of transition because I was there in the late eighties when there were still people coming. Then I was there. I was just a little bit there when I really took over was the early nineties when everybody stopped and there was a recession and it was horrible. There was a good two years, probably longer where the weeknights were, you know, barely anybody coming in. And then it started to get much better as the nineties went on. And by the time I moved to California, they were back and now they're doing, you know, two shows a night weeknights. It's crazy there now, ever since I think the late nineties, um, as the M- as the MC, a lot of the time, people would come in, comics from out of town, really good comics, people from Saturday Night Live, you know, cast members, <laughs> and I was not allowed to put anybody on without Manny saying yes. And it wasn't like any other comedy club where, hey everybody, I hope you're enjoying this episode as much as I am. If you made it this far and you haven't fallen asleep yet. And you must be the type of person who's serious about having a career in the comedy business. That's why I'm offering you my Blueprint for Success, a one-of-a-kind all-access pass into my knowledge and experience after over 40 years of working with the best of the best in this crazy entertainment industry. I'll tell you all the stories, all the philosophies, give you all the great special guests, and even give you one-on-one private consultations to help you expand, enhance, and skyrocket your comedy career. Just go to barrycats.com and click on Blueprint for Success to learn more about my groundbreaking digital academy that I've created just for you. With it, we can take your career so far that one day, instead of listening to this podcast, you'll be interviewed on it. You go into Catch, or you go into uh, any other comedy club. <laughs> if a celebrity walks in, you put them on. There's a, just a known, you know, there's a pecking order that you just have in your head. You just know who can bump who, and nothing could get done because Manny, you know, to his credit, he just had control. He wanted control over his club, and he, I think he had been burned by, you know, some comic putting on his friend who stinks, you know, and in, he wasn't as... Um, worried about who's a giant celebrity and who's not you know he if he if he really knew who someone was he would be all for uh, putting them on but like i would have to you know adam sandler would come in i would have to trudge upstairs instead of going oh yeah here you go i'll put you right on i have to go upstairs find manny uh adam sandler's here he's the guy from saturday night live you know and then explain and then yeah okay yeah it's okay you can put him on you know, tell me, tell me <laughs> an argument you had a fight to put somebody on who he didn't want to put on. Well, let's see. I don't know that I. I know you're not an arguer, but no, tell no. Me. I'm just trying to think if there was anybody who would uh, there, there, if there was anybody particular. I mean, he, you know, he knew. I'm trying to think if there was somebody who was famous that he had no idea was famous, and I can't think of anybody off the top of my head right now, but I know that happened. That's okay. Keep going. Yeah. Um, I mean, it was, it was, uh, um, and he, and there were certain people who, uh, 
you know, Todd, Todd Barry was always somebody who, who needed to be working there. And at first they just, they just didn't see it. You know, David Tell was somebody who I was working there before David Tell, which was crazy. Well, was what happened a lot. And this is, and again, unfortunately, Manny isn't here to say one way or the other, but the goal for me at the Boston comedy club, my club around the corner was to find the great people that people weren't putting on. Right. And Attell, Kevin Brennan, Chappelle, Jay Moore, you know, Wanda, all these people. And once Manny found out that certain people were working there and identified through the comics that they were extraordinary. Yes. He would, Jim Nor, you know, people, he would start putting. That was exactly, that's exactly right. He had to know and be certain this guy's a killer, you know. And if it was just somebody who, regardless, he didn't quite know if it was just, if it was just me, just, you know, oh, well, the guy came in, you know, and, and also people doing time for, for Letterman or something like that. You, you know, it, it was, it was a little bit like the Trey story. <laughs> it was a little bit of, I'm not, I can't, I can't just make an exception for you because if he finds out he might be really pissed off. And, um, to his credit, the comedy at that club was extremely, the quality was just always really high, you know? And yeah, they didn't really deal with open mic until they instituted this late night thing that I then became the, I guess, kind of the booker of that became the bane of my existence (laughs) because, uh, as they, as they saw, as business in the early nineties, wasn't that great. They decided to sort of, you know, turn things over at like 1230 or one to people doing five minutes a piece in hopes they would bring a few people by, I think. And uh, I had to be in charge of that whole schedule. Tell me some of the comedians that are now household names that you saw bomb on a regular basis. <laughs> from Judah, Judah Freelander was a big, he would come in on a skateboard and a major, you know, 135 guy. Um, and, uh, I I think even by the time I left, he was just getting, that was, you know. And a lot of people don't know this. Judah Friedlander was a, a male model, believe it or not, <laughs> before he got into uh, the look that he has now <laughs> from 30 Rock. Who else came in that uh, oh that, that, that became can't. a household name? It was, um, this is terrible that I'm, I'm sure there are others. Because there were, but there were many more people who were not destined to become household names. That is true. And um, I would turn it over to a. I I turned it over to a late night MC the moment I got permission to do that, um, which was always kind of a dicey proposition. <laughs> um, but it was that that the early nineties there and everywhere was. I mean, I the, like you say with the comedy show, the way it would work, it would start at nine. I would have to start often with no people. And it wasn't, they, you know, your club, you'd have people out on the street passing out flyers, this kind of thing. The show didn't really start till there was a show to start. The seller was the opposite. The seller would just start. I would go on stage and there would not be an audience. Yeah, he ran it like a Broadway show. It yes. didn't matter. It didn't matter if there was nobody there, you would go on. I'm and talking, to, talking the waiter, to nobody. talking to the waitress, you know, just having conversations. And he wasn't a guy who would ever can it seemed like he never canceled a show he would never admit defeat 
Yes. Whereas, uh, as Neil Brennan so eloquently said here, when he was he was called by every comedian, no show Neil, uh, <laughs> there, you know, he would cancel a lot of shows at the Boston <laughs> when he was there. One of the things Neil Brennan said to me in the podcast he did here, which I thought was amazingly profound, and I think it, uh, it sits with your career. He said... There has never been anything significant that has ever happened in his career that was not generated from him hanging around the comedy club. So take me back to the first time you met Ray Romano, and when did you think that he started to feel comfortable about, around you? Like, what was the moment that happened where you finally realized, wow, this guy believes in me? You know, it was... I think the first time I worked with him was a week in Princeton, Catch a Rising Star in Princeton. And I was emceeing and he was middling, I think. I think Don McHenry was was headlining. Don oh McHenry, of course. Don Take McHenry became a great, great writer with his writing partner, Bob Shaw. They wrote a number of animated uh, projects for, for and, Disney. Yeah. Um, amazing. And Bob Shaw, just to digress, one of my favorite jokes that he ever did. He was like an older guy, but had done Letterman. He said, you know you're getting old as a guy when you drive over a speed bump and your tit shake. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I remember about Bob Shaw. <laughs> anyway, keep going. <coughs> well, I think that Ray, uh, I did the week there and I did pretty well. I was, you know, 15 minutes up front and that was not a hard club. Um, and, uh, I, he got me into the cellar from that week. I wasn't in the cellar. He introduced me to, to Bill and they put me on and I don't know, you know, maybe I, I, I don't know if Ray just didn't recommend a lot of people. I don't know if I, I'm pretty sure I didn't wow them. That's what I'm trying to say. I think that Ray's recommendation somehow meant a lot to them. Um, obviously he's, a, he was a great comic even at that time. But for whatever reason, they, I didn't realize until later what a big deal it was to get into that club. I knew, you know, I started out with Jon Stewart, who immediately leapt, you know, uh, graduation classes way ahead of everybody. He was just working everywhere when we were all just still dicking around in the open mics. He was just, I saw him at his, one of his first open mics. He went on and did five minutes I would do today. He was just good right away. Amazing. But everybody else, you know, he, so he was working the comedy cellar. Nobody else was working there. And, um, so it was really just, I, I don't know if Ray, I don't think he saw anything. I think he saw that I was a nice guy who deserved a break <laughs> and, um, and it ended up working out because at that, you know, when Bill needed to leave, I was right there and, um, I had kind of the skill set. I wasn't that good to begin with, but I grew into the position, you know, um, but I wouldn't have been there without Ray, you know? And then we just kind of became friends. And I can't even say we became close, close friends. We didn't hang out really besides the comedy clubs. We just became guys who, he, he is one of the first comics I ever saw in New York. And he's the first comic that I saw that I wanted to be like. And what's interesting about Ray, for those of you who don't know, Ray's comedy wasn't always, <laughs> wasn't always as uh, amazing <laughs> As it became, and he's one of the few comedians, norm normally a comedian uh, who you look at and you're like, wow, that is unbelievable. That's the way they started. 
you know, Stephen Wright didn't start off doing, hey, what's up, everybody? You know, it's like he started the way he is now. And, you know, Todd Barry started the way he is now. Dave Attell, let me turn this thing to funny. Still the same kind of thing. But Ray used props and things. And one thing he did at the end of his act, which was amazing, you would never believe that he could ever do it or whatever. He did this thing where he had a rubber band. And this was his closer. He put it around his head. And he would say, I'd like to do an impression for you. And if I'm not mistaken, this is my impression of Hiroshima. or I believe it was Nagasaki. Nagasaki, yes. whatever. And he would do something with his temples or whatever with his head. And so the rubber band would slowly move up his hairline. And then in one full sloop, it would go up and his hair would go in like a little like mushroom cloud at the top. And that was his big closer. That was his big closer. And I'm sure that if I were to, he was here right now, he would be probably want to jump over the couch and. Not well, they be. actually put that on the show. I one of the early, like the first season, because they were working any stand-up bit in there, and he's in bed with Deborah, and uh, you know has this trick that he. I don't know how they set it up, but he does. It's, it exists on. Uh, and that son of a bitch still has the hair to do it. Um, he can still do it. <laughs> um, yeah, so that was weird that, you know, because so he had some incredible routines and amazing bits that were so well constructed. But then he'd have certain bits that he didn't let go of that were always killing. Well, the thing about him that is true to this day, and I feel like I had an early, I don't know, insight into or audience with, is he just looked like a guy who was talking. You know, it's a simple comedian principle there were plenty of guys up there who could, you know, they had a lot of good jokes and, but he, he just, he, his timing was amazing. He had a lot of jokes that weren't just like super punchlines. It was just the way he paused a little bit, like he thought he was done talking and then he said something and the surprise came from more the timing because you, you know, he was taking you this way with just his body language and the inflection in his voice. And instead he would go a different way or, he, you know, the surprise came from, like Cosby, really, just a guy who was talking about his family, which grew and he started to lose the props. But even then, he had the thing about his dad driving and um, and the early stuff. And it was it was he didn't feel like a, that's not a stand up comic. That's like a that's a funny person. That's a funny persona. Yeah, And it was all in one of the things he was great in talking about family and family is something that everybody in the world loves. And I used to watch him and I just used to love the way he talked about his uh, Italian mother and how, you know, um, yeah. listen, mom, no more. Well, that means two more scoops. <laughs> and then he'd have this inflection in his voice. And believe me, if, if you want to stop your Italian mother from giving you more, you have to shoot her right right mom put down put down the spoon you know <laughs> on the cannoli put down the cannoli yeah. and so what, whatever the bit was and yeah. it just it just the way he the timing of it like you said Ma, you have you you have to shoot her I, and I, it just it was like you couldn't i he, think the reason he it all worked out for the best obviously but the reason why he was one of those comics who who hung around for a while and didn't get a break until later was because he made it look too easy. He, he didn't, uh, and it was very New York. So he's in New York and I think people overlooked he's, you know, ethnic or whatever. There was that whole thing, but it, it, he made it look easy. He didn't ever look like he was breaking a sweat. 
And uh, but this is what know. else he did, uh, which uh, it's no surprise that you two work together, because I always felt the same way about him as I felt about you. <laughs> Um, well, thank you. For those of you who have never met Ray Romano or never been around Ray Romano, uh, one of the most wonderful people you will ever meet in your entire life. There's never been a situation in my entire career where I've ever known him to say anything, to do anything that could even remotely be considered by anybody to be derogatory. He's just, he's, he's incredible, incredible person. Yes. Yes. He was great uh, to work with. He is, uh, he's a big fan of, you know, other comedians. He would come in. One of my biggest shameful moments was I've been working at the comedy cellar for a while and Ray comes bounding in and he starts to set up all his food. He's getting food from upstairs. He's setting up to like watch somebody. Like, I'm not even sure. I must have been on that night, but it was a, kind of like a weird, like he's just setting up to watch somebody. I'm like, what's going on? He goes, oh, this guy, this new guy, David Tell, you got to see him. And meanwhile, I, Dave and I, <laughs> Dave and I come up, um, every, we'd had day jobs together and we used to do every open mic together. And uh, so I'm just seeing him like, oh, this new guy. I'm like, I don't remember you setting up to watch me ever <laughs> like this, but I get it. Cause, but that's how you know you're doing something special as an artist. If you have people who are in your profession who are coming into a room to see you, you know that you're doing the right stuff. And Attell uh, in New York and Sam Kinison at the Comedy Store in Los Angeles at the end of the night, you would want to see that set. Right. You would want to see what happened and how it went about because Attell and Kinison... They had something in common, believe it or not. They had no fear. They had no fear that Mike Royce used to have about doing <laughs> shows at his college and wondering whether people were going to think in his fraternity. <laughs> Dave Attell didn't seem to give a shit what people think. Sam Kinison didn't seem to give a shit. He right. did what was in his mind and what felt right, and it just turned out that everybody loved it and wanted to come in and the thought that everybody was coming in and watching either one of them was uncomfortable to them. Uh, they they couldn't believe that anybody would want to watch them or whatever. They didn't mind it, but they were like, um, and they would perform to those people in the back a lot of right. times as well. Right, right. And so, uh, so how did you start working with Ray? How did it all come about? I know you worked on a book with him. He chose you to help him go. Did you ghost write the book or did you write it with him? Yeah, I wrote it with him. He had another writer as well. <coughs> um, Comedian or another? Uh, no, I, um, he had written. Oh, my God, this is terrible. See, uh, what happens a lot escape. of times when you're a comedian and you're writing a book, you get recommended people who are ghost writers who all they do their whole careers is get paid a certain amount of money normally between fifteen and $50,000 versus a percentage of the book sales. And they don't put their name on it, but they help you structure it. You sit down with them. They record everything. They type everything out. The most important thing in a comedy book that you'll see when you read them is called a button. 
in each chapter. What happens is the chapter starts off a certain way, the first paragraph, and you'll notice at the very end of the paragraph, there's something that's said at the end of the last two sentences that ties in. Right. Very important for the structure. It's a different structure than sitcoms or screenwriting. And a lot of times comedians use somebody like that, but then they bring on somebody like Mike, for instance, somebody that uh, Chris Rock I know works with a lot in projects, and I think it's common knowledge as a guy named Lance Crowther, who is to Chris Rock what you were to Ray Romano in that particular situation. Yeah, it, it worked out. You know, I knew he he was looking for additional material to he to his credit. He didn't want it to just be here's all my jokes, you know, very uh, badly structured. He wanted to make them into essentially essays and make it make it really uh, a humor book. And um, I he needed more material, basically. And I was faxing him stuff and he was like, it was stuff actually, you know, I'm very flattered by it because he started doing some of it in his act. It ended up coming out the other way, you know. Um, but I was able to add, I think because I knew him so well from sitting there and watching every New York comedian by sitting in the back of the comedy center. Um, I knew I could have written everybody's book, um, but he, I knew how, and I knew his rhythms. I, you know, I knew what kind of stuff he liked and, and I was able to compliment it pretty well. And eventually he just kind of flew me out and we sat in his office for two months and put the thing together. And, um, that combined with, um, when he hosted Saturday night live and I, I wrote a sketch that did pretty well, that, that more was just. Uh, Phil Rosenthal came out for that show and he Phil Rosenthal was the showrunner of Everybody Loves Raymond so he yes. came out for which show for when Ray hosted Saturday Night Live and okay. they had written a, a couple sketches and I had written one and we all helped each other you know um, I, I I don't even know if Phil considers this a thing but to me it was like I was proving that I'm not just Ray's friend and some boob who's, you know. So Ray asked you to help write this uh, this bit. Now, when you go to Saturday Night Live as an outsider. Yes. It's, uh, it's daunting, especially as an outside writer, because there's all those writers there. They do not like you. No. They do not want well. you there. They do not want to see your sketch succeed. They don't want it that way because they want to be the ones to know that they got something through. So Lauren can look at it and say... Hey, everybody, let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, radio, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial-free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one -on -one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business, I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to barrycats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. Wow, yes. that guy's doing it. Every time I see Robert Carlock and Dennis McNicholas, 
I apologize. <laughs> to writers, though. <laughs> because they had what what's the worst of all worlds. When you get a sketch on, you you they have to produce your sketch. So they had, in my case, they had to go through and run down, Rob, poor Robert Carlock had to run down a million clips for a sports center sketch. Half of the things they couldn't get the rights to. It was a lot of work. And so you're not only, as the writer, of, uh, as a Saturday Night Live writer, you're not getting your sketch on, but you got to produce this asshole sketch. And we went to the NBA, so we bought them shit. You know, we, we kept, uh, we, were, we were doing our best to understand that just by being there, we were being annoying to them, but that we understood and tried to just be not be, not be dicks about it, I guess. And and we also said to Lauren, I mean Ray did, don't put our sketches on because Lauren wants to support the host, and the host kind of has a lot of say. I didn't realize that till I got there, but the host, you know, he was ready to kind of put on. We had written three sketches and. Two of them did all right, and one of them kind of bombed. And Ray said, "Don't put that. Don't put them on unless they actually are going to do well." You know, you're talking about in dress rehearsal. Yeah, and even after the table, you know, yeah. after the table when they're setting up the the, the rundown. The table whatever. read is where you sit around with like fifty writers around the table with Lauren at the head. The world's you, worst table read. And you read uh, for like two, three hours with the host, all these sketches. And it's uh, it's it's very, very, very hard to it, do well in that room. You know, I don't remember any of them doing well. And um, I just thought when I was done, well, I'm not sure. I'm, I really can't tell what's going to go on. But um, but yeah, it was um, it was a great it turned out to be a great experience. And one of my greatest memories is sitting inside sneaking inside for the dress rehearsal and watching the sketch kill and just being like and, and living in New York City and I had never worked for Saturday Night Live and I never would but it was that's a thrill that you you know grow up thinking about and then being named one of the 50 greatest SNL sketches of all time by Rolling I have Stone. I made that a catchphrase hurt. that's the thing I can always take to my grave is I created sweet sassy molassy <laughs> which is the thing he says in the sketch over and over uh, well, yeah. that can be arranged. The, uh, tombstone. <laughs> that could be on my tombstone. So talk about, so that was the moment where you wanted to prove yourself. You're going in, you know, Phil Rosenthal is there. And in your mind, you don't have to say it, but I would think that when you went to Saturday Night Live, your main goal wasn't just to do a great sketch on SNL or write some great stuff. Your main goal was to, that Phil Rosenthal would look at you and say, I have to hire this guy. You know, I actually didn't have that. I certainly wanted to write for that show. But I, at that time, was doing pretty well stand-up-wise, finally. <laughs> it had really taken most of my career to find a voice. And alternative comedy kind of saved my saved my act because it shook it up and I was able to do some creative things. And so I was kind of torn because I was really happy in New York. And uh, so I wasn't really looking for a job there, but it did work out that way that he, uh, you know, that they had an opening and uh, there was an opening on Spin City at the same time. And I had to choose whether to live in New York or whether to move to L.A. And, you know, luckily, I, I mean, Spin City was a, was a great show, too. But Because you wrote that one episode for Bill Lawrence, who's an amazing showrunner. Yeah. Um, and you have Phil Rosenthal and Ray and you had to choose between both. And when you're choosing as a writer... Uh, it's the greatest feeling in the world because two entities want you. What you realize early on, though, is that you think that because two entities want you, it means that there's going to be more money for you. <laughs> but in the beginning, that's not how it works. No. And, and it's called a baby writer position 
which at the time that Mike went in was probably around $3,000 a week, which is a lot of money for anybody listening, but for writers of what they normally get on sitcoms, it's not a lot of money. No. Um, but for him, it was a, obviously the it most money he'd ever seen in his life. <laughs> and so here he's offered both. He chooses Ray's show and I you get a, in. Now, this is the yeah. most amazing thing that we're going to talk about here. And this is what I love talking about. In every instance so far, you're the guy who comes in and, like, for instance, Ray saw hundreds of comedians, hundreds and hundreds of comedians. He chose one comedian to help him write his book, you. True. He saw hundreds of comedians. He chose one comedian to come to Saturday Night Live and help him write the sketches, you. So then Ray gets a show and he has an opportunity to bring somebody on. He's seen hundreds of comedians. And yes, there was one guy on. I always can never pronounce his name <laughs> because he changed it uh, one time yeah. to, and it, he found out it was a porn star's name and then he had to change it back. <laughs> How do you pronounce his last name? Caltabiano. Tom Caltabiano was there, but there was no one else there. And you get that gig as well. And so... True to form, like late night at the Comedy Cellar, you could only name one person during your time who <laughs> became a household name or got on a television series, and hundreds didn't. So you were always doing something to put you in a position to win. So how do you think that you were able to do that? And then you get the show, and this is something else that's incredible. When you get to the show... How many writers are there? 10, 11, something like that. 10 or 11 writers there, yes. okay? And you are a baby writer. Yes. And how many of those 10 or 11 writers, plus all the other writers that came in and out during the time you were there, became an executive producer of the show? Well, Raymond was a very stable uh, bunch of writers and some of them had been there since the beginning you know you know some of them Lou Schneider of course Steve Scrovan of course <clears throat> um, and so by the end there were a few you know how more many, than a few how many executive producers how many Mike oh god at the end out of all the writers how many writers would you say came and went and, oh. or, or were stayed or went during your time. You had to guess how many total. Not, I don't know. But 25? No, 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 no. That's what I'm saying. Raymond is is an exception to what you're saying is completely true about 99% of all shows. So you're saying that from the moment you got there, there were only like 10 writers who stayed the whole time. Nobody left. Nobody was fired. Nobody. Six or five or six who were there for all nine years. Got which it. is, you know. And those six happened. became executive producers. Yes. And I also became one. And uh, there were certainly some people in and out, you know, um, but it was more on the order of one or two per season here and there. Sometimes we didn't have any changes between seasons. Um, it was a great job. And Phil is an amazing showrunner, and the hours were amazing because he's an amazing showrunner. And so no one wanted to leave. And we were doing a great show, and we loved it. You know, I didn't even want to do stand-up again, which I thought I would want to do, because it was such fun to write the show. I didn't have that hole in my life. You know, I thought I would, but I didn't. Started making good money, and it was all great. And what's odd is that, you know, again, not to keep going beating a dead horse there, a lot of writers 
worked on the show. Not as many as normal, but a lot of worked on the show. Ray had a relationship with a lot of people. He loved all these writers. But then he leaves the show. And um, I'm going to jump past Louie for a second. Mm-hmm. And he decides he wants to create another show or he wants to work on another show. Yes. Men of a certain age. Well, that... Uh, and uh, yeah. how is it that you are the guy that he does that with and he doesn't do it with anybody else? Well, that was truly a, you know, a combined effort where it came out of both of us um, after waiting for Lucky Louie to be picked up. I was waiting for that. He was about an, a year and a half removed from Raymond, and we were both in a kind of a melancholy mood. He just said, "You know, let's clearly, get clearly, you both needed uh, to make some money." I mean, uh, yeah. <laughs> well, that was the thing is that he, we started getting together just like you know, let's write, you know, let's write a movie. Let's just you know, whatever, we'll figure it out. You know, it was just getting together with no plan. Um, and immediately we started just shooting the shit and we were both in the same place, mid forties, uh, late forties in his case. Um, he was really like, is it over? Am I done? And as successful as he had become, obviously you don't, you can't take that away. He was looking at his life. Like, am I, I'm at the top of the hill and now I, I don't know, how can I top that? How is anything ever going to be that good again? And these are the normal feelings you have when you're you hit the you're between your 40s and your 50s. I was having them too. You know, Lucky Louie was was great, but I, I Raymond had come and went. I you know I didn't know what was ahead. We both were just sitting there like, yes, we've been very very fortunate. In his case, very 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 fortunate. Great great lives. Can't complain. But is it over? Is it done? And we started to just have all these conversations, realizing that people this age have those same conversations no matter what your job is. You have that mentality when you hit that age. And and that just, those conversations became that show. We came up with characters, um, a lot of talk about his character because he didn't want to do Raymond again and we wanted to make sure it was somebody that he wouldn't be viewed as like, oh my God, look at Ray trying to uh, do something crazy different. But also it had to be much different. Now, when you're out pitching the show, I mean, when you're out pitching a show with Ray, I mean, obviously every network president is in the room. Yes. And and they're, they can buy in a second. They can tell you in the room, we want to do this show. Whereas normally when you, most people are pitching, it's like, oh, we'll get back to you in a few weeks or whatever. Right. Let us talk about it. <laughs> Normally, you're in the room with a network president. It's like, we're not going to talk about it. We want to do this or we don't. They'll, they'll, when, when they tell you, let us talk about it, that means they're not going to do it. Yes. So you pitch all over the place. Well, the truth is we didn't because what happened was, first of all, none of what we did would have gotten anywhere without Ray. If I had written a show about three guys turning 50 and gone into any room and said, my show is about three guys who are exiting the demo. <laughs> I mean, it's it's literally the exactly rate the ratings demo the ratings demo is what Mike's talking yes. about, which is normally I believe thirty two to forty nine or something Seven, like that eighteen to forty nine you know twenty five to fifty four depending on what twenty five to okay I'm sorry but but you know you're literally like let me make a show about all the people that you want to forget about because you know, <laughs> advertisers 
if Ray Romano doesn't want to do that, then I'm not going to even get it close to the thing. We started, you know, fucking around with it and making a making a thing in this weird foul in this weird period that we both weren't doing anything. Lucky Louie ended up not getting picked up. Suddenly I was getting all this just, you know, interest from people who wanted to do a development deal with me, but for network stuff and for sitcoms. Which is incredible. Like, just so you know, great showrunners like Mike are like football coaches. It doesn't matter if you have a bad season. Yes. After you get fired or after it doesn't work out, there's people waiting in line to hire you. I, my greatest fear turned out to be completely unfounded. You know, I'm very proud of Lucky Louie, as is Louie. Um, it wasn't everybody's cup of tea, and that's a whole other podcast. But <laughs> um, I was fearful that because it got canceled— um, and had been, it had been pretty hyped. And so that it, the fact that it wasn't a success that didn't go on to a second season, I thought that would hurt me. And normally, and it hurt Louie, but well, it didn't, but it hurt Louie in the sense that no one gave him the keys to the kingdom until about five years later. But yes. just because that show was a show where it was groundbreaking because it was the first sitcom for HBO, but also Louie is like a, an incredible he has the vision of like he's like a feature film director of the most respected absolutely kind. absolutely he knows when he's writing exactly who he wants and he doesn't give a shit if who he's writing for is a guy that is incapable of being socially uh <laughs> acceptable on a set is incapable of creating any kind of conversation with anybody or has any it didn't matter if these characters were a half step step behind socially, if they had problems, if they were addicts, if he wrote for them and he believed in them, they would get the gig. So you had people on the show, they were actors on the show that were like, except for his wife. Right. They were all people in the business that never auditioned for anything. Yep. So you had Jim Norton, Jerry Minor, Rick Shapiro. Um, I'm going blank. I'm sorry. On um, uh, well, Mike Haggerty was a fairly established actor, but um, uh, sorry, who did is uh, um, Laura Keitlinger. Laura Keitlinger. Um, yeah. So, so you had all these people that were on the show that were like, and and they weren't. They never really were. They weren't getting gigs. They, Laura, were, you know. they weren't working. They were great people, but they weren't working because the audition process is so brutal that you they just weren't great at that process, in my opinion. But they were great when somebody gave them the confidence of saying, you're my person. Mm -hmm. And when you do something like that as an actor and you surround yourself with people who are what I would like to say in your capacity, which Louis, again, was another person who had never really been given the opportunity to book acting jobs. He just, whenever he auditioned, or which was rare because he didn't like to audition that much, he'd go in and, and, and it wasn't happening. He right. wasn't getting the gigs, just like all those people that he hired. So here, as opposed to something like Ray's show, Everybody Loves Raymond, or Seinfeld, Ray and Jerry the networks forced them to surround themselves with established rock solid actors who had done hundreds and hundreds of episodes of television. Right. Louie made the decision that he was going to surround himself with people who were at his level as an actor in terms of booking jobs, <laughs> right. except for his wife 
and Mike Haggerty. Right. That's yes. And to me, that was the fatal flaw of the show because you need to have people around you, even if they do a great job, these people, and they did. And I think Rick and, and Jerry yeah. and Norton were great. But the point is, is like you need the foundation that's strong to carry you through the creative process in my mind <laughs> and to be able to come through in a way that people have that confidence. It's very rare. Yes, there's examples of workaholics and things like that or always yeah. sunny where things work. But the odds are so far against you. And especially on a place like HBO where HBO is like the four seasons of acting <laughs> right it's like you got there there's people that are fifth leads on shows on the wire who are like some of the greatest actors of our generation yes and so you look at shows that are on television now with mcconaughey and and jude law these are like you know so even if rick shapiro and norton or jerry minor were sitting here with us they wouldn't find that insulting what i'm saying it's just the fact that it's like you'd look at the outliers book. You need your 10,000 hours to really have something. You know, I, I think you're right. And at the same time for this particular show, I think you're right in terms of what the, what would have made that show a much bigger hit. <laughs> um, where I think HBO and Louie didn't see eye to eye and the reason it didn't continue you know, I think it would continue today. What happened back then was HBO was still Sunday night only, basically. That's when we trot out our incredibly gold-plated entertainment that you're going to... The Sopranos, and I mean, that had just ended at, or was about to end. Sex in the City, you know, Entourage. We were on after Entourage. Lucky Louie after Entourage is like a punch in the face, stylistically. You know, this little dirty video sitcom with like all these actors who are stand-ups. <laughs> and and Louie, you know, very foul uh, show, you know, not not that it's that that was the end game, but like... I it was think... the crying game in some episodes. <laughs> uh, that's, that's another podcast. Um, <laughs> I think if they had said to Louis C.K. instead of, I think if they had promoted the show in this way, instead of, oh my God, it's HBO's first sitcom. It's going to kick you, kick your balls off. It's going to be so amazing because we're HBO and here's our sitcom, the only one we've ever done. It came with so much baggage. Louis is very idiosyncratic. Louis does what Louis does. He's brilliant, you know, obviously one of the most brilliant stand-ups out there. He's a brilliant writer. He does his thing. Obviously, that's what he's doing now, and it's brilliant. And that's with that right. sitcom, his goals were not to make, you know, a sort of, I don't know how to say it, a, like a down the line. He wanted to do what he wanted to do. He had his goals. He wanted to make it extremely, uh, uh, you know, sparse-looking spare with the, like a honeymooner's approach. Uh, but still shot on video because that was sort of a throw a, a, a Roseanne type of uh, note that he wanted to add in there. It, it came out really, it, you know, very strange. As always, this has been Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. And if you like the show, tell all your friends. And if you don't like the show, tell all your friends. You get out. Fancy call 
All the people love you Cause you're going for Life is for the dreamers They have all to gain It's never quite over So it all feels the same You pick your own poison Dig your own grave Down in the valley Fortune Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to BarryKatz.com. Before you leave, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support, and have a great day.